welcome to episode 62 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sacrament trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sacrament.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Quinn Galloway-Salazar, a veteran of the United States Army and a spouse to a retired combat veteran. Her work has spanned the last 20 years supporting our nation's military and veteran communities. As the founder of In Their Honor LLC, Quinn serves as an end-of-life doula and trainer. In addition to her work supporting veterans at end of life, she also serves as the co-principal investigator of the Brooklyn College Veterans History Project in which she conducts oral history interviews of veterans, listening to how veterans make meaning of their experiences and sharing with larger audiences. You can find out more about Quinn by checking out her bio on our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. As a veteran and a military spouse yourself, and as a researcher and veteran advocate, you focus much of your post-military life on the care and support of those who served. I'd like to hear more about your journey from the military, your military service, and to what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. But first and foremost, Dwayne, I have to say thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being the host and shedding some light on the topics that we're going to discuss tonight. So big thank you, heartful of gratitude. So how did I get here? 2001, April 2001, I joined the Army Reserves. Prior thought into making that decision was the last time we had a big conflict. I was in the third grade. I'm dating myself by saying that. I was in the third grade. Surely I can do this term of service and nothing's going to happen. The military is going to help pay for me to go to school. I'm going to travel and see the world because that's what my recruiter told me. And all jokes aside, um, August 2001, I came home from basic training. 9-11 happened a few weeks later. And my life and the life of all of those that were currently serving at the time changed. I'm a New Yorker. So that attack on the Twin Towers hit home. And I, as a reservist, I was called to active duty in January of 2003 to support efforts at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. My MOS at the time, I was finance. So it was my job to make sure that troops were being paid and getting sent off to theater in combat status. Tough times at that time. I remember being, I think I was maybe 20 at the time, Dwayne. And there were so many service members that were about my age that was getting ready to go to war and would look at me and ask, am I going to be okay? And at that time, I didn't have an answer. And having many conversations following that with other service members that had babies on the way or that had moms and dads that were aging and just the concern of family as they were getting ready to deploy, I really saw a different side of war 
And I saw the side of service members who really had care for those that they were leaving behind in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. And so I, I, I did two tours at Fort Bragg. I came home. I was a mom by the time I came home. So not only was I a mom, I was a single mom. So transition was not that easy for me coming home right off of active duty and jumping into the space of mom and daughter and sister and student all over again and really being able to take a little bit of my identity out of that uniform and become a civilian again. I joked for the first few months coming home, Dwayne, that, hey, I'm taking this uniform off and I'm not putting it back on. And even when I discharged, I said I said something similar. And in hindsight, the military never left me. I never left the military. And we're talking about a love affair that's been going on for the past 20, 21 years. I don't say that I chose to have this life of service after my service. It chose me. Um, continuing to serve the military and veteran community is an opportunity, is a, a passion that continues to seek me out. And I'm disobedient and I'm, I'm here for the ride. You know, I always find it interesting when I talk to people like yourself who uh, had enlisted immediately before 9-11. I, I think I, I've talked to some of the, the West Point graduating class of 2001. They graduated that spring of 2001 and their mindset changed overnight. The freshman incoming class of the service academies, they changed immediately. But by the time they graduated, obviously they were already thinking we're going to war. But like me, I'm dating myself even more that I wasn't in the third grade when the last major conflict <laughs> I, I enlisted in the last major conflict uh, shortly after that. But my career, I, I was already in that mindset. I'd been in the Army for 10 years by 9-11. And so my wow. mind was already, let's go. This could be a potential. Right. But for those people on that cusp of they joined a year 2001 or 2000 in the mindset shift that you had to make very quickly, that, that can be challenging on top of you were a reservist that didn't expect to. It was, I was a recruiter, I think at that point, at least 2003, 2005, but the recruiting line for the reserves in the 90s in 2000 was one week in a month and two weeks out of the year. And that changed very quickly. And so there was a lot of shifts for you very early on in your military career. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was overnight. It it literally was. I went home for Christmas because I was in college. I went home for Christmas and then I got a call that said, hey, you need to be back immediately. We're mobilizing. And I'm like, but what do you what do you what do you mean? <laughs> like That's not how this works. And sure enough, I found out exactly that's how this works. And then, like you said, understand, having that experience of supporting service members as they're deploying, understanding, yeah. again, just the finance stuff of you're the one yeah. that, that has to explain the survivor benefits to them, right? Like you, you had to confront them and be confronted with the fact that there's a, a good chance that this young man or woman sitting in front of me, we have to prepare for the fact that they may not come back, yeah. that you said that led you to continuing to serve the military community after you got out? Yeah, it did. So once again, my MOS was finance, but I also had a fit identifier for postal. So I ran the mailroom towards the end of my tour. And wow, the conversations that I had with soldiers that were deploying and soldiers that were coming home, because this was 2005 timeframe. And it set me on a trajectory because I was hearing stories. And I felt like I was being called into a space 
of actively listening to what soldiers were experiencing. And doing I had no, like, I was a criminal justice major. My goal was to be an FBI agent. My goal. And all of a sudden, this heart work started. This act of listening to individual stories started. And it just shifted for me. And I'm thankful that it did because I think in many instances, I was able to be a safe space for soldiers to say, Specialist Galloway, I'm freaking scared. And not always having the right answers, but being present and hearing them when listening to an officer say they're scared. You can't tell your soldiers that. And just being in that space where they can share that and not even knowing at that time what confidentiality or any of that was. It just was in my presence. And I'm thankful that I was able to be that support for service members, for soldiers as they were deploying and coming off of deployments. I mean, I can imagine, and, and, and you've heard the joke, like you don't mess with the person that does the pay, does your mail or the cook, right? <laughs> but you are in that position in which people are, they have to confront vulnerabilities. If you hand them a letter, for example, from someone that they haven't heard from, like they're even in those two positions, they are closer to their vulnerabilities and they don't have their wall up like they do, for example, to a behavioral health professional or their medical doc who may ground them from a mission or something like that. And mm -hmm. so I think the combination of you being the person you are, being in the positions you were in, opened that up and allowed you to be able to have those real and honest conversations. And like you said, that's led to a lot of the work that you've done after the military, specifically around military and veteran suicide, which is how you and I first met a number of years ago. Yeah. So I'd like yeah. to hear your thoughts on service member veteran military family suicide and how we as a military support community can approach it, maybe need to approach it. Yeah, um, it's all hands on deck. And I'll start it off with saying that it's definitely all hands on deck. A few years ago, I was serving the National Guard and I got a call regarding a veteran who was in crisis. And we did a home visit and she had attempted. And that, Dwayne, that experience changed me drastically. When suicide, when a suicide attempt is so up close and personal, when you see it firsthand and not reading about it or hearing about it when you see it firsthand and you see how it impacts that service member, that family, and that community, it causes you to want to do something, right? And I remember it's about maybe a year or two after that experience. And I saw a position for the service member veteran and their family's technical assistance center to focus on suicide prevention. And at that time, it was just the mayor's challenge. The governor's challenge wasn't even a thing yet. It was specifically the mayor's challenge. And that's initially where you and I met. And I jumped in, right? Because it allowed me the opportunity to help impact change on a local community level initially. And as time progressed and, and, and I was promoted a few times, it allowed me to do it from a national level. And really, there have been times where, you know, I've had to roll up my sleeves and just get in the, the uncomfortableness with those that are providing these services. But I also think that it's important as we're looking at the suicide numbers of our veterans, we're also looking at the suicide numbers of their family members and the caregiving population. And so, the latter leg of my work has really been focusing some attention on that. I will never forget, and I'll call her by name, and it's I'm sure it's okay. We were at a Mayor's Challenge Policy Academy, and Sean Moore 
said to the audience, I will never forget it. We're talking about service members and veteran suicides, but we're forgetting about the F and we cannot forget about the families because they too are hurting and are experiencing significant challenges in silence. That's absolutely correct. And and Sean, I will also say her name. And and for those who haven't heard her story, it, it is an amazing story. But the idea of you coming to this work and many of us come to this work because we're personally impacted in a very real and personal way, not just like you said, I heard about somebody that I served with seven years ago. I think this idea of a, a death by suicide or or even of an attempt to die by suicide has some significant impacts on you personally, but now by you sharing me, by extension, there's these extensions of these impacts that yeah. one single attempt or death by suicide has very far-reaching impacts. It does, absolutely. And you think, I think the number is like 135, one death it has a ripple effect of about 135 people, 136 really. When collectively, I think that we all can roll up our sleeves. We all know that one veteran, we all know that one family member, that caregiver, that goes off the radar every now and then. Check in on them. Stay connected. Connectedness, when you think about the pillars we talk about for the governor's challenge, for example, connectedness was always the one for me, right? That there isn't just this recipe or a formula that's special. It's just connecting on that human level to say, I see you. And what can I do to be in this space with you? And what, how can I wrap my arms, not just around you, but around your family as well and those that love you as well? That moves mountains in someone's life where they don't feel as isolated. They don't feel so alone. They feel heard. They may not totally feel understood, but hey, I know that my sister in arms or my brother in arms is journeying with me and I can pick up the phone and call them if I need to. That's amazing. And that's a gift. And, and it is a gift and it can be hard work. And you've transitioned from the hard work of a 21-year-old postal clerk, right? You know, listening to these these majors or whatever, like that's some hard work. And then moving into suicide prevention, harder work. And then moving now even beyond suicide prevention to some very, very difficult work. But one of your focus projects now is addressing the needs of veterans at the end of their lives. Those veterans that are experiencing end-of-life care Many times we'll think of the physical health needs like hospice of caring for physical health, those things that need to be done for someone who's terminally ill. But the unique experience of veterans requires additional knowledge and understanding at end of life care, which is that's even more difficult work than trying to teach someone how to support suicide prevention in their community. It is. And and I think to make it to give it a little bit of relevance for you, if I'm not mistaken, for example, your dad's Mm -hmm. a Vietnam veteran. Right. Mm -hmm. One of my very first clients that I started working with early on when I became an end of life doula was a Vietnam veteran. And Dwayne, he said to me the very first time I talked to him, why do you want to be my friend? And I was just like, wow, like that resistance wall was high. And every way that he could possibly try to dissuade me from being his friend, he tried. And ultimately, a lot of it stemmed from the guilt and the shame that he had carried for so many years, where he didn't feel as though he was worthy. And he was coming to the end of his life, still feeling that guilt, still feeling that shame. And we would talk every week. And that 
That singular experience, starting with him as just being a doula, allowed me to say, okay, it can't just be him. Death is a universal experience. Let's just call a thing a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's also an experience that we don't want to talk about. It's taboo. However, it's important that we start talking about it. I'll bring up another name and in her honor, I'm bringing up her name. For so many of us, Dr. Kate Hendricks Thomas Mm -hmm. is a friend of ours. And when I started on this journey of becoming an end-of-life doula, Kate was one of the first people I shared it with. And Kate said to me, all those that wander aren't lost, Quinn. And so for the 20 years that you've been working in various spaces, serving military and veteran populations, it's landed you here. And what's beautiful is right before Kate entered into hospice, I had the opportunity to sit down with Kate and do an oral history interview with Kate and have her legacy preserved. And that's what, Dwayne, that's what it's about. There's so many ways that we can support veterans at the end of life. Part of my work is creating trainings for states, right? That's happening. Creating trainings for states so they can start talking about what that looks like. I'm also working on creating a curriculum for caregivers, caregivers and care partners that their loved ones are coming to the end of their lives. But I'm also doing this oral history piece where I'm collecting stories of our veterans that we know are dying, that are facing their mortality, and giving them the opportunity to share their legacy and to preserve their legacy. is It's a dream come true, right? It, it really is. I remember one of the earlier conversations Kate had with me and Kate said, Quinn, after, and this was when I was working on my, my dissertation for my doctorate. She said, tell our stories. Will you promise me that you'll tell our stories? And I was like, that's a heck of a, Kate, that's a lot. That's a heck of a job that you're asking me to do. And it was totally my honor to collect her story and to be able to say, Kate, what's your legacy? And for her to want to leave her legacy for not only her family, but for society at large. And I think that's important to many of our veterans, right? Many of our veterans want to be able to have sacred space where they can share their story, whether it's from Vietnam, whether it's from Korea, World War II, just to say, listen, I served and there there may be some long-term impacts on my life because of my service. Will you journey with me? And hear about that. And that's that has been so awesome to be able to do and so awesome to give my time in doing. Because guess what? At some point in my life, and Dwayne, at some point at yours, that's going to be our journey. And it would be amazing to have someone in our community, someone a part of our veteran community, come to our home or come to wherever we are and just sit and hear our story and preserve our story so that years to come, people can know what we did in that dash. And I think the important thing is that obviously, as we approach the end of our lives, we start thinking about that legacy piece. And while we're addressing end of life care, physical end of life care, the unique experience of veterans require, not require, but could benefit from somebody who also has the unique experience of being a service member to be able to relieve some of that burden. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's wonderful because as of late, I've started to get, you know, emails and calls to say, hey, how can we do some of what you're doing in our communities? And I'm like, 
wow, really? Okay. This definitely can be a ripple effect. All it takes is someone, once again, starting with that active listening and wanting to hear. It's so amazing, Dwayne, what we can learn from hearing about our past to impact our future. It's that simple. It's that simple. It doesn't take a wealth of money to do that. I look at so many volunteer organizations that are doing great work. It doesn't, it just takes the willingness. And I think for so many veterans who come out of the military and still have that desire to serve, because I think all of us in some way, shape or form Mm -hmm. still have some desire to serve. That's an easy win. It's an easy win. Nothing like pairing a a Gulf War veteran or an OIF, OIF veteran with a Vietnam veteran and just sitting down. I once had the opportunity to talk to author Carl Merlantis, and, and he's a Vietnam veteran and wrote the book Matterhorn. And he was like, we may have served in different eras, but mud still smells like mud and blood still smells like blood. There's the commonalities between generations of service members that, that can really bridge that gap and can be a solace. Yeah. So as we continue for the next 50 years, we're going to be doing this. And I really appreciate you doing this very difficult, but also necessary work. If people wanted to find uh-huh. out more about the work that you're doing, how could they do that? Sure. You can head over to my website. It's in their honor dot info. I am on Facebook at Quinn Galloway Salazar. I'm also on LinkedIn at the same Quinn Galloway Salazar email. You can always reach me by email and it's qgsalazar at gmail.com. Feel free. One of the things that I love, Dwayne, is being a collaborator, right? I think by nature, that's who I am as well. And if this resonates, right? If this heart work resonates, let's do it. Let's go ahead and touch this topic. Let's spark these conversations throughout the nation. Boy, what a difference it can make in someone's life that's entering that transitional phase of the end of life and also what we can do for their family to show that support on that last leg of their journey. Absolutely. Critically important. And I will make sure all of those are in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dwayne. And thank you for all that you do. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Quinn. As I mentioned in the conversation, and as you could probably tell, Quinn and I have connected as a result of our mutual work in suicide prevention. And, as typically happens when we're talking about improving the lives of those who serve and those who care for them, suicide is often a topic that comes up. Almost 20% of the episodes that we've released so far had guests that were either working in suicide prevention or have a goal to address military and veteran suicide as part of their work. But I wanted to highlight something that Quinn said about how connectedness is an important protective factor that either keeps someone from experiencing a suicidal crisis or something that can keep the crisis from being fatal. I don't often refer to outside projects and ask the indulgence of the listeners, but I know that genuine connectedness saves lives. In 2020, a colleague and I, Dr. Shauna Springer, produced a year-long podcast series called Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Much like this show, these were short episodes of genuine conversations with a wide range of guests, all talking about different aspects of suicide prevention, 
lived experience of attempts and loss, research, best practices and prevention, the potential of artificial intelligence, and community-based training. After we completed the interviews, we analyzed over 175 quotes from the entire series and identified 10 emergent themes, like the need to identify risk factors and warning signs, reduce stigma, the public health approach to suicide prevention, and lethal means safety. During the final episode of the series, we featured a conversation with author and economist Jamie Mustard, who helped us identify the most important, basic, and compelling theme that we could communicate to the community. And the 175 quotes and the 10 themes can be boiled down to one phrase, genuine connectedness saves lives. Connecting veterans to each other and their community, connecting veterans to resources, and connecting veteran support resources to the community that the service member, veteran, and family member calls home. It is both as simple and as complex as that. Genuine connectedness saves lives. It was great to hear Quinn's insights and to hear that concept also validated by her experience. The other point that I'd like to briefly share is an extension of that connectedness piece, which is Quinn's work supporting veterans and their families as they undergo end-of-life care. I've had some colleagues in the past who are hospice nurses, and they say that it is some of the most rewarding work that they've ever done, but it can also be the most difficult. But Quinn described herself as an end-of-life doula, and some might wonder what exactly that is. When we talk about doulas or midwives, we think about births, someone who provides physical and emotional support during pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period. So take that concept, support for someone who is being born and their family, and apply it to the end of someone's life when they're in hospice and experiencing a terminal illness. End-of-life doulas are non-medical companions that support hospice or palliative care professionals in caring for those who are dying and their family members. And, as I mentioned in the conversation, how important is it for that kind of support for someone who served in the military to come from someone who understands the unique culture and experience of the military? It's difficult work, and it may not be for everyone to do, but as Quinn said, it's something that we're all going to have to face. It's reassuring to know that Quinn and others like her are continuing to support service members, veterans, and their family members right up to the end. That's truly the definition of never leaving a fallen service member behind. Check out her work and connect with her if you think that there can be a mutually beneficial opportunity. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share two Psych Armor courses, a two-part series of courses entitled No Veteran Dies Alone Volunteer Training. In part one, learners are introduced to hospice and palliative care, and in part two, you'll learn how to prepare yourself for serious illness, dying, and grief. Again, heavy subjects this week, but also very real subjects that need to be talked about. If this is something that interests you, take a look at the courses through the links in the show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, 
We would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.